0: How's everyone doing? Good, good. It's nice to see your bright faces this morning, anticipating the new year, right? Hopefully it's more awesome than this past year. Maybe so. Um, Yeah, anyway, if you've been with us over the past month, you know that we've been in a series called The Characters of Christmas um, through the Advent season. And this morning we will be jumping back into Romans. So we will be in Romans chapter 8. This morning, um, if you weren't with us in Romans, I think most of you were, um, but if you, if you missed some sermons back in when we were in Romans, I would highly recommend going back and listening to what you may have missed, because Paul builds off of each chapter through the book of Romans. Um, so I would go back and listen to that. Um, Mark and Rick did a great job preaching through um, up to this point. Um, Mark left off about a month ago in Romans 8, um, verse 1 through 11 is where he left off and then we'll be starting in verse 12 today um, but just a, a quick review of the book of romans up to this point is that we were um, chapters 1 and 2 really focus on that us being having enmity with god that we were separated from god because of our sin that no one was right before god and we have all sinned and fallen short of his glory um, and in chapter the middle of chapter 3 paul um, has this really climactic um, statement where we have been set free from our sins through the blood of Christ, that we are no longer enslaved to sin, um, but now we have been set free from that through the blood of Christ, and we've been released from, from the power of sin or, or the penalty of sin through Christ. But also, Mark touched on a month ago in Romans 8 that we have been released from the power of sin through the Spirit. So we have been released from the penalty of sin. We were in debt to sin, but now um we've been set free from that but now we are released from the power of sin as well through the spirit And we're going to be touching on that a bit more through the rest of romans 8 but there is a debate over romans 8 as to whether or not it is about the spirit of god or whether it is about the assurance that believers have in god and i believe that the primary the spirit's primary role is to provide us with assurance of our faith so that's the, that's the Spirit's primary role in our life. So I think that Romans 8 is about both of those, as we'll see here in a minute. Um, but how do we know that we have assurance in the Spirit? How do we know that the Spirit lives in us and we are children of God? So we'll start in verse 12 this morning. <clears throat> this is God's Word. <clears throat> so then, brothers... So Paul is saying in light of the truths that we just heard in the, in the section above that the same Spirit that rose Christ from the dead is now alive in us. Because of that truth, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So the assurance, that we, the assurance number one that we have that the Spirit of God is in us is that the Spirit helps us fight against sin. So we fight sin in the Spirit. So the assurance that we have is that if you don't have the Spirit in you, you are most likely at peace with your sin. You are comfortable with your sin. You think that your life is good enough to appease God, and you are coasting through this life thinking that everything will turn out well. The way that we know that we have the Spirit living in us is that the Spirit causes us to hate our sin. It causes us to hate it, that we cannot go on any longer without begging the Spirit to, to lead us to repentance and cause us to, to hate and, and remove ourselves from the sin, to run away from that sin. That is, that is the assurance that we have in the Spirit to hate our sin. Because eternal security is based upon us actively pursuing life in the Spirit. It's not about coasting. But as, as Pastor Mark mentioned a, a couple months ago, that we must almost activate the Spirit inside of us, which makes us alive um, in the Spirit, causing us to fight sin. Because even if you are saved, even if the Spirit is alive in you, you each of us know that, that sin is very much alive in us as well, and that it actually wants to destroy us. It wants to destroy our relationships and our, our lives. John Owen says, We must be killing sin or it will be killing you. The life of a Christian is never a life where you are neutral. You're never neutral in this life. You are active in this life, actively fighting against sin in the spirit. I love how Matt Chandler puts it. He says, fighting sin without the spirit is like backhand slapping a bear. It's not going to go very well for you. So the Spirit helps us fight sin. Look with me at verse 14 and 15, chapter 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So not only does the Spirit help us fight against sin, but the Spirit gives us assurance that we are sons. Even in verse 14, we, we see two things in verse 14. We see an identity as sons of God or children of God, but we also see an activity that, we are, that sons of God are led by the Spirit. Children of God, sons of God, there's synonymous words that, 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 Paul is, that Paul is using. Sons of God meaning like children of Israel or children of God are being led by the Spirit. This isn't a begrudging like the Spirit puts a choke collar around our neck and is dragging us down the sidewalk to follow Him wherever, he go, wherever He's leading us. No, it is, a, it is a willing obedience to humbly follow the Spirit wherever He is leading us. So there's, that's the activity. And those who follow the Spirit willingly are sons of God. See, the Spirit's ultimate goal in our lives is to make us more like Jesus. The goal at the end of our lives is that we gain complete Christ-likeness because we are walking daily in the Spirit as the Spirit is leading us out. But not only do we have the Spirit leading us, but the Spirit gives us assurance that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are sons. We have received sonship through adoption. We have been fully loved by a perfectly holy and perfectly competent Father that he will never leave you. He will never leave you or forsake you. If you think about this term, Abba, Abba is still used in the majority of the world today. The word we use for Abba is Dada. So who, what people do you know that still use the word Dada? Babies, right? It's infants, children. It's some of the first, maybe the first word that they use other than mama, but they're looking to those people in their life who will love them and care for them perfectly. And you have to earn that, right? Like as they're growing up, they're trying to figure out, okay, who's going to feed me? Who's going to change my diaper? Who is going to put me to bed? And once they identify those people, they're realizing that these are the people who are loving me and caring for me. So I love that Paul includes this, that now through the spirit of God living in us, that we have the opportunity and the access to call God in heaven our Father, our Abba, that we are to cry out to him like little infants who need his care and his love. Jesus uses this term Abba in one of the most intimate and sacred moments of his life. In Mark 14, 36, Jesus cries out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you remove this cup from me yet not my will but your will be done jesus is in the garden of gethsemane here and he is filled with anguish and anxiety as he's considering this death that he's about to face on the cross and he he physically cannot go on without crying out to his father in heaven saying Father, please help me. I am weak. If there's any other way for this to happen, please may it be so. And do you know what happens next? That there is silence from Abba. That Abba does not answer his son. That there Jesus is experiencing rejection from his father. He does not respond to his own to his one and only son. And this had to happen. In order for us to be forgiven, in order for us to receive the gift of adoption, Jesus had to have been rejected. Jesus had to have been forsaken by his father, where he cries out and there is no answer because God had to turn his face against his son who is carrying the weight of our sin in order that we may be forgiven in order that we may receive the adoption as sons and daughters of god like thank you jesus for being rejected for being rejected that we may receive life and the family of god that we may be we may have access to the father through the son there's a great quote by j.i packer it'll be up on the screen here that i feel like really encompasses this idea If you want to judge a person, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child, having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all, because this is the crux of Christianity. The crux of Christianity is that we have a Father in heaven who loves us deeply and sent his own, his own Son to die for us, to be rejected, that we may have life, that we may have access and be adopted into his family as sons and daughters. And I know many in this church have experienced or walked through, walked through and walked, <laughs> walked through adoption, whether you've experienced it personally, whether you've been adopted or you've, your family has adopted. A child into their family, you know what adoption entails, that it entails this child getting a new name, right? That you are receiving someone else's name, that you are being brought under a new roof. Oftentimes you're entering into a new family, getting new siblings. So take this same idea and try to grasp, wrap your mind around the fact that your father in heaven the king of the universe, the creator of the cosmos, is, is calling you into his own family, and he's calling you as sons and daughters. He's calling you his own beloved. And if sons and daughters, we are not just sons and daughters, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Look with me at verse 16 and the first part of verse 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Romans 4.13 elaborates on this a little bit more, that Paul says that the promise to Abraham and to his descendants, that Abraham and his descendants would be heir of the world, to inherit the world. And that promise did not come through the law, but it came through the righteousness of faith. Us becoming heirs of God is not dependent on how well we please God or how well we do in this life. It's based upon the righteousness of faith that comes through Jesus and his work on the cross and our faith in him and his righteousness. 1 Corinthians three twenty one through 23 says, For all things are yours. It's talking about us. Sons and daughters of God, all things are yours. The world, life, death, the present, the future, all are yours, and you are in Christ, and Christ is God's. Do you understand the gravity of this? Like, we are inheritors of the world. Like, God, everything that is under the dominion of God's rule and reign and authority will be ours, because we are heirs of God. Like, the world, the earth, the nations, all things— So church, I want us to wrestle with this question this morning. Why? Why do we strive so hard to settle for this little tiny piece of the earth right now when we will inherit far more abundantly than you and I could ever even imagine? Why are we settling for a tiny piece of it right now? Remember about 12 years ago, um, I asked my wife to marry me. We got got engaged and we set our wedding date. And when we set the wedding date, we we quickly realized, wow, this is going to be a 14-month engagement, a long engagement. (laughs) Bad idea. (laughs) Um, And for because for so many reasons, like it didn't take but a month for me to realize like, man, I want to get married now. Like I want to get married now. And I remember about three months before our wedding, I was sharing with a guy who was discipling me at the time, doing some marriage counseling with, with us. And I'm like, man, this struggle is real. Like, it is real. And, I mean, we're, we're almost married, right? No, not almost married. We're not married. So <laughs> don't, let, don't let your mind go there. And he said, I remember what he encouraged me with. He said, you can wait. You can wait three months. You can wait three months for anything and over the past almost 11 years that we've been married i don't think i've thought i don't think i thought about that this 14 month engagement once the time that we as long as that period was over the past 11 years that we've had it's been a blip like it's been a vapor on the radar of our of our life in that 3 month period like i had ju- i had to just remember it just for this sermon so like, in light of the 11 years that we've had, that 14-month engagement was nothing. So how much more so is 80, 90 years of pain and suffering on this earth, how much more is it a vapor in, in the picture of eternity? If the whole earth will be given over to us, like, can't we wait for that? Why are we striving so hard to get a little piece of it right now. To build a kingdom here on this earth now. I think a picture that really really hits it home is in Luke 18 where Jesus has this interaction with this rich ruler. And this ruler comes up to him and says, how must I inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus asks him, well, you must, you must obey the, the commandments. And the guy says, I, I have, I've obeyed all the commandments. And Jesus says, well, there's, there's one thing that you still lack. And Jesus begins to go on and say that you must sell everything you have and give it to the poor. But Jesus doesn't just stop there. He says, once you sell everything you have and give it to the poor, you will receive many times more in the age to come. He says this to a rich man on earth. And what does this man do? He walks away sad. He walks away sad because of of all of his riches, because he is trying to consume as much of this world as possible, forgetting that he will inherit the world when he leaves it. We can wait for this. I know, all of us, we want to be comfortable, we want to be safe, we want to be happy. We want to see beautiful things and I'm telling you, it's coming. It's coming. There will be mountaintops and beaches and deserts and seas, lands, rivers, oceans, everything. But it will be 10 times, it will be 10 billion times better than what we have here. And it will be forever and ever and ever. And it will be exceedingly more abundantly than you and I could ever imagine. We don't need it now. We don't need it now. So I was going to ask you this at the beginning, but as you think about 2022, What is your hope for 2022? And how does this idea that we are heirs of God, how does this change the way that we live this next year or the next 30, 40, 50 years? How does this change the way that we live? And the reality is that as sons and daughters of God, that us inheriting the earth, the whole world, and everything that's under God's dominion, that's just the tip of the iceberg for what we receive. Not only do we receive everything that is under God and everything that Christ gets because we're co-heirs with Christ, but we receive God. We get God in all of his glory. Psalm 73, 24 through 25 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. You. Psalm 1611, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This promise in Revelation 21.3 says, the dwelling place of God is with man. If you want pleasures forevermore, if you want to be dwelling with God forever, here's your inheritance, that we get to be with God. And all the glories of this earth, everything that you can consume on this earth, all of those things are pointing to the glory of God that is to come. But don't get caught up here because we exist. We exist to savor and make much of the glory of God. We exist to prepare for this weight of glory that is coming. Because if you get God, you get everything. And in 2022, I want us as a church to fall in love with our inheritance, with what is coming. Look with me again at verse 17. If children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him. In order that we may also be glorified with him. We don't like that very much, do we? That we are heirs of God. We're fellow heirs with Christ. But there's a nice little clause in there. There's a prerequisite for that glory. Glory. There's a prerequisite for being heirs, that word provided, provided we suffer with him. Paul is saying that if there's no pain, there's no gain. If there's no cross, there's no crown. But I don't want us to be caught off guard by this, because as followers of Christ, like why, why should we expect anything else in this life except for a cross if that's who we're following? Lilius Trotter, who was a single female missionary in one of the hardest regions in the world about a century ago, she said this Does anyone read these words who is trying to struggle from the natural life into the spiritual by some other way than this way of the cross? It is as impossible as it would be to pass from today into tomorrow except through the night. Paul is saying that we cannot get from this earthly world of today to the heavenly eternal world of tomorrow without going through the darkness of the night. But this isn't some just like vain suffer for the sake of suffering. That's not what Paul is calling us towards. We must suffer meaningfully, and we see that all throughout the Word that we must suffer meaningfully. So, how do we do that? How do we embrace suffering meaningfully? How do we embrace suffering with joy? As we'll hear in a minute from Paul, so turn with me to uh, yeah, verse eighteen through twenty-three here, Romans chapter eight. Paul continues. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. So first thing we must notice here is that suffering is normal. I've yet to meet a person who hasn't suffered no one's immune to it and even in verse 19 it talks about creation waiting creation waiting eagerly for the revealing of the sons of god i don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to wait with a four-year-old but it is suffering for you and the four-year-old there's suffering in the waiting when we wait for glory to be revealed there's suffering in that waiting I remember the prophets crying out, waiting for the Messiah to come. There was suffering in their waiting. Verse twenty talks about: for all creation was subjected to futility. This includes sickness and disease and death because of Adam, who subjected it, who brought about the fall and brought about brokenness and sin. I don't know if, if like, just walking through ordinary, mundane things in your life, like things break. Nothing works, right? The gears of life are dirty and sandy. There's sickness and death and hardships. But not only these physical ailments that we deal with. But as we talked about at the beginning of this passage, that there is sin. There is the wrestling and the struggle of sin. When you are in a fight against spiritual things, like you are suffering. You're suffering under this weight of sin. We have been in bondage to sin and corruption. That's what verse 21 says. So we have to embrace this reality that suffering is normal, this side of heaven. I'm sure all of you have and are experiencing that now. But suffering is also meaningful. Don't waste this time on earth. It is meaningful. I don't know about you, but the last time that Early this summer, I remember having a great vacation. I remember the last sunset that we saw. We were trying to soak up every last drop of it because we knew it was going to end. I knew that I had to go back to work that next week, and I wasn't going to have the sunset anymore. I don't know about, like the most, think about the most amazing dinner that you've ever had. Maybe it was like a steak dinner, and you had like one bite of steak left, and you're just trying to savor the last bite because you know it's going to end, and you may not get another steak like that for who knows how long. You're just trying to soak up every last drop. Those endings should create in us a groaning, an eager longing for something better, for something that will never end. We should groan with anticipation for the glory that will be revealed to us as sons of God, for the the redemption of our bodies and the adoption as sons. So that you're not just eating or you're not just enjoying vacation in vain. You are doing it because it is producing in you a joy that, that 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 should produce in you a joy for eternal things, not just things here on this earth. Everything is pointing to what is to come. So not only are we groaning for something better or something that's more that's lasting, but we are groaning because of the pain here in this earth. We are groaning because we want God to come and make all things new. We want him to make things right. We can't just throw in the towel and give up. But we've got to long for God to reconcile, redeem, and heal the things of this earth in his timing. But in this time that we feel this pain, this pain is not, it's not meaningless. We must remember that in our pain, we must cling to Christ. That Christ went before us and he felt the pain that we feel. He was crucified. He was forsaken. His friends ran away and disowned him. He has felt the pain that you feel. He is with you in this, so cling to Christ. And that is the purpose of our suffering when we are suffering in pain, is that we run to Jesus who is there for us. That's what makes our suffering meaningful. There's a song that was written um, several years ago called Though You Slay Me by Shane and Shane. And there's a version of this song where they spliced in a sermon from John Piper. And I'll have the, the, sermon, the excerpt of the sermon up here on the screen. We're just going to read it for us because I like it really speaks to this text. Piper says, Not only is all your affliction momentary, not only is it light in comparison to eternity and the glory there, but every second of it is totally Meaningful. Every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of that suffering. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism, slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. It's doing something. Of course you can't always see what it's doing. Don't look to what is seen. When your mom dies, when your child dies, when you've got cancer at 40... When a car creams into the sidewalk and takes her out, don't say that's meaningless. It's not. It's working for you in eternal weight of glory. Therefore, don't lose heart. But take these truths and day by day focus on them. Preach them to yourself every morning. Get alone with God and preach his word into your mind until your heart sings with confidence that you are known and cared for. I pray that Redemption Park would be a church, that when we are in the midst of suffering, that we would preach the, the word into our minds, that our hearts sing with confidence that we are known and that we are cared for. So not only is our suffering meaningful, but our suffering is temporary. Suffering does not have the final word. That's the silver lining of suffering, is that it is temporary, that there is something greater coming. Verse 21, again, creation will be set free from its bondage to sin and will obtain freedom. Verse 22 and 23 talk about this. All creation and we ourselves have been groaning. We've been waiting. But what are we waiting for? Because it better be better than here, right? What are we waiting for? Our inheritance is not just a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's not it's much better than that. We are waiting for our adoption as sons. And it's what we saw earlier that in our text that we, we have we have the first fruits of our adoption. We have our first fruits that we are in the spirit because we are obviously killing sin in the spirit, but we are also that we have the first fruits of our adoption as sons. We were taken from children of wrath to now children of God, from slaves to sin, now sons of God. But our adoption is not completed yet. So we wait for the adoption as sons, for that to be completed. But we also, in verse 23, we await, we eagerly await the redemption of our bodies. And I don't know about you, but after I turned 30, my body started groaning. Anybody relate? Maybe? Yeah. That's not exactly what Paul is talking about here, though. Um, Although I think it it has a little bit to do with it. But um, in Romans 5, chapter 5 through 7, um, Paul describes our solidarity with Adam, that we have a oneness with Adam. Even though you you have unity with Christ, you have oneness with Christ, we have received our bodies in Adam. And what we see in verse 13 of this passage is that Uh, Verse thirteen: For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So there are deeds in our body that need to be put to death. There are sin in our bodies that we are fighting against constantly. And what Paul is saying here is the first time Paul talks about this: that our bodies will be redeemed. Paul is saying, no more Adam. You will no longer be united to Adam, but you will be fully united to Christ forever. So people's, God's people groan eagerly, waiting for their adoption as sons, waiting for his, his final, the completion of his saving work and the redemption of our bodies. But right now we are in the already and not yet phase. We have the first fruits of his saving work, but we await for that final adoption. There's a woman named Johnny Erickson Tata who was paralyzed as a teenager. um, And she's been a quadriplegic for over 55 years. And she wrote this When I get to heaven, I'm going to push my wheelchair to the throne of Jesus. Notice I'll be walking. I'm going to thank him for every, every character refining work he did in me and through me because of this wheelchair. And then I'm going to ask Jesus to send this wheelchair straight to hell because it was only needed and relevant because of the wreckage of sin. May we see that suffering in this life is to only produce an an urgent dependency on Christ and a deep longing for glory. Paul indicates in this text that much of the good that God brings out of our suffering will only be manifested in eternity. We're not waiting for it here on earth. As we close out this passage, in this sermon, I want to focus on verse 24 and 25. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see... We wait for it with patience. So our hope is that we are sons of God, that we are heirs of God, that we are fellow heirs with Christ, that although we suffer with Christ, we will also be glorified with Christ as long as we wait patiently with hope because by this hope we are saved. So what is this hope? What hope are we saved by? What are we as a church hoping in? Are we hoping in things that we can see? Are we hoping in things that we can't see? As you think about this next year, are we hoping to obtain a little bit more of this tiny piece, this fraction of the earth now? Or is our hope in the inheritance of God that we have coming for us as the as our adoption is completed and glory is revealed. Because I promise you that this 80 or 90 years of pain on this earth will be as nothing. And like verse 18 says that it is not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. And the reason that we have hope, the reason that we exist is that we can, we can share our hope that we have with others. And by us sharing our hope, displaying our hope to others, it reveals the glory of God that is to come. So we pray for us. Father, we... We praise you for being our Father. Thank you for adopting us. Thank you for caring for us and knowing us. Thank you for your Spirit that gives us assurance that we are not alone, that we don't have to fight sin on our own, that we don't have to worry about what this this life is to come, God. I pray that each of us in this room would feel the weight of what it means to be a child of God not only a son or a daughter, but an heir and a fellow heir with Christ. Oh Lord, there are sufferings in this world. There's various kinds of suffering, Lord, and we know that you are with us through them all. May we cling to you ever more tightly with whatever is thrown at us in this next year, God. I pray that that Christ would be on the throne of our hearts and that we would long for something greater, something that is to come that your glory would be revealed. Oh Lord, we love you and we pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.